Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shore, editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. Teams from the Mass General Brigham Health System and the Commonwealth Care Alliance, both in Massachusetts, have collaborated on a value-based care initiative with the principal goals of improving patient clinical outcomes, reducing unnecessary healthcare utilization, and making care more accessible. ICMP Plus, or Patients Linked to Urgent Support, is an integrated care management program providing intensive, multidisciplinary care to the highest risk, dual eligible patients with Medicaid ACO coverage who have complex medical needs and high health care costs. Care team members meet patients where they are, demonstrating the effectiveness of community-based care management support programs. On this episode of Managed Care Cast, we speak with Dr. Jack Rowe and Dr. Lori Tischler, two authors of Intensive Care Management of a Complex Medicaid Population, a Randomized Evaluation, published in the September issue of the American Journal of Managed Care about their findings on the program's effectiveness from its early phase of implementation. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Rowe and Dr. Tischler. Before we begin, can you please introduce yourselves and tell us about your work? Yeah, thanks so much for having us. I'm Jack Rowe, a physician trained in internal medicine and pediatrics who for several years was on the population health management team at Mass General Brigham with an appointment at Harvard Medical School. And during that time, I was fortunate to work with our team on developing the intensive care management program that we're talking about today called ICMP+. I've since transitioned to a company called Agilon Health, which partners with providers across the country to participate in value-based models of care, particularly Medicare Advantage. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the invitation. And I'm Lori Tischler. I am a primary care internist by training um, and worked at with Jack in the Mass General Brigham system for many years. Right at about the time that we launched the ICMP Plus program that we're about to discuss, I moved to Commonwealth Care Alliance, which is an integrated payer provider organization in Massachusetts that takes care of some of our most uh, citizens with most complex needs, um, primarily dual eligible. CCA is now in four states across the country and also takes care of Medicare Advantage now as well as dually eligible folks. I am the um, Senior Vice President of Medical Services and Care Delivery at CCA. You both were authors on a recent study that investigated intensive care management among a Medicaid patient population with complex medical needs as well as high health care costs. Can you give us a brief synopsis of your study and its main findings? This was a randomized controlled quality improvement evaluation on the impact of intensive care management among a high-risk Medicaid ACO population of an academic health system. Mass General Brigham is a large academic health system based in the Boston metro area with a large number of members in some type of value-based contract. And for years, these were primarily Medicare and commercial and self-insured employees in these types of value-based contracts. And because of this depth of experience in value-based care, MGV developed a portfolio of various clinical programs to support these patients. 
However, as Mass General Brigham was preparing to enter into a Medicaid ACO, they recognized that despite the suite of clinical programs, there was still opportunity to do better. Over many years, Mass General Brigham had developed a practice-based care management program known as ICMP, the Integrated Care Management Program, where care managers were embedded in primary care practices and targeted the top 5 to 7% roughly highest risk patients. However, again, as we entered into a Medicaid ACO model, found that there were opportunity to better support the top 0.5 to 1% of patients with even more intensive and community and home-based primary care and care management. The patient phenotype that this was targeting were those often with severe comorbid medical behavioral and or social drivers of illness and often use high numbers of acute services such as ED or inpatient. When we were working through strategic planning, conducted a build versus buy analysis, and identified Commonwealth Care Alliance, or CCA, as a differentiated regional and national leader in the care of complex dual eligible patients, determining that the best path was to contract with CCA to develop this intensive program for the highest complexity Medicaid patients. This program, which we named ICMP Plus, was designed to provide intensive and multidisciplinary support. And there were two models. First, the RAP model, where patients retained their Mass General Brigham PCP and CCA provided intensive multidisciplinary care management led by a nurse practitioner. In the second model, named AICU, ambulatory ICU, CCA took over primary care for the patient. And in both models, services were provided at both CCA's brick and mortar office in Boston, as well as in the community, where patients' homes, homeless shelters, wherever was needed to get the job done. Both models also incorporated access to Commonwealth Care Alliance's crisis stabilization units and community paramedicine programs to facilitate, again, further community support and ED avoidance. Members for the program were initially selected via multi-step process of first analytics run on claims and clinical data, looking at factors such as utilization and costs. And then second, a central reviewer assessed for appropriateness, as well as suggesting which type of model, RAP or AICU, a patient might benefit from. And then critically, third, the PCP ultimately validated whether the patient should be in, in the program and if so, which model. And we then conducted a randomized controlled quality improvement evaluation of the early phase of this ICMP plus program to determine the impact on acute care utilization, such as inpatient admissions, observation status, and ED visits, as well as total medical expense or TME. Of the 166 patients identified by the aforementioned selection process, they were randomized two to one in intervention to control groups respectively. In the intervention group, patients were eligible for support from the ICMP Plus program. In the control group, patients were eligible for support from Mass General Brigham's standard practice-based care management program, ICMP. Analytic cohorts were limited then to patients with a minimum of six months of Medicaid enrollment, both in the prior year and in the year post-randomization. Among the 131 patients included in the intent-to-treat analysis, 87 were assigned to the intervention group, and 44 were randomly assigned to the um, control group. Pre-specified primary outcome measures were TME, emergency department visits, and inpatient utilization. And as I mentioned, we analyzed this in the 12 months pre and 12 months post-randomization. 
In terms of the results of the study, relative to controls, patients randomly assigned to receive the intervention group had a $1,933 smaller increase in per member per month total medical expense with a p-value of 0.04. There was directionally consistent but non-statistically significant reductions in ED visits with 17% fewer in the intervention group and inpatient admissions with 34% fewer in the intervention group. We also found a key driver was likely engagement. Among this ultra complex and often hard to reach population in the control group, the traditional practice-based care management program engaged 25% roughly of the patients, whereas the intervention group received 74% of the patients were engaged with a p-value on that of 0.008. So overall, the study was rich in lessons that we'll get into further now, I think, related to patient selection and programmatic design for intensive care management programs, as well as academic and vendor collaboration. The primary takeaway, though, is that our study's results supported the targeted intensive care management programs can favorably affect total medical expense in a health system-based, high-cost, high-risk Medicaid population. For those in our audience who may not be familiar with care management programs, can you break down their principal components and goals, as well as any unique features of your specific program? Absolutely. I'm happy to take this one. So I think that care management and case management um, can be, you know, can have multiple, multiple definitions across uh, across the healthcare continuum from the from the Case Management Society of America. It's a collaborative process of assessing, planning, facilitating care coordination advocacy and evaluations to meet an individual or in some cases a family's comprehensive health needs. Many, many um, medical practices, health systems, health plans have case and care management. At CCA, actually, we call it care partnership because we, we want to pay more than lip service to the fact that the patient is in the center and we want to be their partner. Um, people don't necessarily like to be managed, but they, they are happy to be partnered with. Case and care management programs are often tele- telephonic. They often provide, in their kind of most standard way, they often provide resources for patients, um, but they don't always go as far as to to really help and support the patients. So I think some of the things that were um, very specific to our model, and I think the reason ultimately that MGB wanted to contract with CCA was that we we do community-based engagement. So we meet the patient where they are. Maybe that means at their doctor's office. For many patients, it did. It was a, it was a safe and comfortable place to meet. For other patients, it was really hard for them to get to the doctor's office. That's why they were in this program. We'll meet them at their house. We'll meet them at Dunkin' Donuts, in the park, where, wherever. But that's that's what we would do. And our community health workers and nurses used to joke about, it's okay, I'll do a drive-by. And they would actually go and kind of cold knock on the door of patients and introduce themselves. Or if the patient didn't answer the um the door, they would slide a little flyer under the door about what the program was. 
we really work with the patients. We identify and leverage the patient's strengths. So it may be that um, their diabetes is terribly out of control, but their personal goals may be something entirely different. And what we've found um, at CCA is that really working towards someone's goal builds engagement and trust, often in fact has health impact, but even if it doesn't, that engagement and trust will lead to a uh, patient's willingness to engage around healthcare issues, um, even if they're, you know, their first priority, and, and for many of our patients it is, is to get their, their electricity turned back on or get their hot water running. So, um, so we help with that. We had a full interdisciplinary care team, which which I'll talk about in a minute, and um, and then I think the thing that were was huge, and Jack alluded to it in his answer to the last question, was the partnership between MGB and CCA. It was new for both of us, right? CCA was used to caring for their own membership. MGB is huge and talented and mostly builds things on their own. So figuring out how do, how do we work together? How do we ensure communication? How do, how do we meet everybody's needs and measure that and govern it? And it was, you know, it was iterative. It was, I would say it was never once unpleasant, but it was a growth experience, I think, on both sides. And then the other piece I think that was unique was leveraging some of the unique strengths of CCA. Um, as an integrated payer provider organization, we we have a primary care practice. And for those patients who, and, and we do a lot of home-based care. So some of the MGB patients, um, for example, one I took care of, I don't think he'd been out of his house in a year. And so he could either need to go in an ambulance to see his doctor, and that's complicated for patient and doctor, not to mention expensive. Or, you know, we drove up to the community where he lived and we we saw him. And um, so it was the ability to see people in their homes to use. We have mobile integrated health, which is a community paramedicine. So for urgent needs, we can dispatch a paramedic to the um, ICMP plus members home, um, which more often than not, probably about 70% of the time, diverts somebody from going to the emergency room. And then for patients with significant behavioral health needs, um, we have behavioral health uh, clinicians on our team. And then we also have a crisis stabilization unit, which uh, ICMP plus members were able to go to. So people who did not need to be on a closed psychiatric unit, but needed some extra support. The biggest thing is, you know, working with working with and for the patient and meeting them where they need. And then and then addressing behavioral health and social needs. I think that's yeah. probably the biggest thing and being able to do that in the community. What changes has your program undergone from its pilot stage to the present? Sure, I'll take this one to start. I think there's been several changes. So the teams have honed the approach to patient selection, enhancing the algorithm that uses claims and clinical data to initially identify patients and increased utilization thresholds for program inclusion. There's no longer that second step of a central reviewer, though critically the program still relies on the key piece of PCP level validation for program inclusion. Additionally, CCA and the Mass General Brigham teams work to further hone optimal team structure 
and staffing ratios, as well as further evolved workflows and protocols. More recently, the program's expanded size and payer mix. And I'll note as well, the program was originally in the Metro Boston area, though as we expanded further into Western Massachusetts, we saw how the model played in a bit more geographically distributed area and worked to evolve that as well through including, for example, more of a telephonic component than in the more urban area in, um, in Eastern Massachusetts. I think the other things that we um, added kind of from a, from a clinical perspective uh, was coming to understand that uh, we actually needed in this population to have nurse practitioners leading the team. We had started with nurse practitioners, if I remember correctly, then we thought, well, we could probably do it with RNs. But what we found was that the complexity, medical, social, behavioral of the patients involved um, required somebody who had the ability to really make an assessment and plan in the moment, and who also had the ability to communicate at a very high level with the patient's physicians, whether they were a CCA patient or an, uh, a RAP patient. So, so that was some um, something that we tried after the pilot that we thought, okay, we thought this might work, that it would um, decrease costs a little bit, but ended up really needing that. But what we did do was add to our interdisciplinary team um, to add LPNs, administrative folks, RNs, so that our NPs could have a higher caseload and could really work at the top of their license. We threw out the entire program. We did, we've always done case conferences, um, but we did move to doing um, some really great joint case conferencing, including teams from CCA and MGB. Um, we review every death in the program. And, you know, sadly for a young population, there are, there are too many, which speaks not to the program, but to the complexity of the patients. And then the inclusion of the Medicare members, which is a different population. So our Medicaid members um, had had have different challenges. So really thinking about what do we need in a in a geriatric population. I think the other thing that I want to mention is the the level of psychiatric need in this population is incredibly high. I think nearly, what was it, Jack, 80% of the members had either serious persistent mental illness or substance, really high. Use, substance use disorder, yeah. higher even than our population at, at CCA, which is about 70%. Um, and that was probably the biggest challenge for for the MGB folks um, prior to this program, um, because it's notoriously hard to engage folks who are who are struggling in this way. So ensuring behavioral health integration, I think for a population this complex is key. And I think for anyone who's ever either experienced a behavioral health problem or taking care of somebody either that they love or that they're caring for as a clinician, you know that that it's a physical illness. And I think that's that's key. And one of the things that's really important to us at CCA, we don't give up on people. So we know substance use disorder, like part of the nature of substance use disorder is relapse. But as we know from research done by our colleagues, it's actually not a bad prognosis disease. We can we can help people get better. We just have to 
I mean, A, we have to keep them alive until they're ready and B, um, you know, really kind of be in there and uh, judge less and care more. You concluded that further research is needed to evaluate the impact on additional clinical outcomes. Using your findings as a jumping off point, how can future investigations add to knowledge on the importance of care management programs at reducing excessive medical expenses, emergency department visits, and inpatient service utilization? Our study was the early pilot phase of our program, and we know that the literature on similar programs varies considerably in terms of design, implementation, and results. And so we need to better understand as um, an ecosystem what components of these models are most driving the outcome particularly related to selection and programmatic design, and then the optimal structure to evaluate and metrics to track over what time period. I think additionally, we need better data on clinical outcomes, specifically related to clinical quality, as, as well as a more direct assessment of patient and provider experience. As we spoke with PCPs in our program, we were currently heard that one benefit of the program was really helping the PCPs by taking patients that were complex, and often time intensive. The other thing that I'll just quickly note, and Lori, I remember you made this comment to me early on when we were developing all of this, that these Medicaid-only patients were five standard deviations more complicated than the average dual that you guys saw. That's right. And what, is, and what does that mean in terms of reimbursement, benefits, et cetera, that we have this subset of Medicaid-only patients that are so complex relative even to dual eligible populations. Lori, would you have other comments? No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And when I when I think about that and I think about the complexities even of and some of these people were truly disabled. And our ability to actually get them more services was sometimes limited. So so I do think there's future investigation into complex care both, you know, kind of policy and payment. How do we, you know, I can define complex care. Maggie, you can define it. Jack can define it. And I'm willing to bet we'll all define um, define it slightly differently. But, um, but how do we um, think about payment for those patients? And how do we think about patients who should be dually eligible? Can we, how can we do that? How can we care for Medicaid patients? I mean, Massachusetts, um, and I'm sure our, you know, our listeners are aware, has very rich benefits in Medicaid, um, which allow us to do some of these things. And other states don't. So what is it that we could do in, um, in other states to provide this kind of care? So, you know, I would love to see, you know, also what is different about our the Medicare population that we've now started to take care of? Some of the things I think, you know, would be obvious to us. It's an aging population. There might be more, you know, dementia, delirium, things like that. Um, I'm willing to bet that substance use disorder is higher than anybody thinks and also behavioral health illnesses. And then I'd love to see us be able to evaluate other, you know, additional clinical outcomes, the things that were directionally significant in this paper. Um, I'd love to be able to say that, you know, we proved that they were significant. Um, and even to make a connection between the improved engagement, right, from 
a low amount of engagement to these patients to a higher amount of engagement, that that actually has real impact on health outcomes. Did any of your findings surprise you? You know, I, I think just very quickly, we were a little surprised to see the number of ED observation visits increase, though thought that it might be due to the possibility of conversion of what would have potentially been inpatient visits, that now that the ED providers have had the program socialized to them in their departmental meetings, and they see the acute care plans pop up when they open the patient's charts in the ED, seeing the resources that are available and potentially have CCA's team members calling or at times either even coming to mm -hmm. the emergency department to have a discussion with them on how to best support. Um, those are types of things that would happen at the ED point of care, potentially responsible for um, the increase in ED OBS visits likely relative to inpatient admissions. Lori, do you have other comments? I'm not sure surprised um, because, you know, it's been, it's been my life work to try to to improve care for patients like this, but but so pleased actually that we were able to show um, these significant differences, especially um, in light of some of the other studies that have come out that have been mixed. In an accompanying editorial, AJMC co-editor in chief, A. Mark Fendrick, and co-author Neil Solomon draw contrast between your positive findings and the disappointing results of several other care management interventions. What could be some factors contributing to these differences in outcomes? I think there were some really significant differences um, in this program, uh, between this program and other studies. I mean, the first is that this program is comprehensive. It wasn't just giving people resources, and it wasn't time limited. So um, we are delighted when someone can graduate from the ICMP plus program back to regular um, strong care management at MGB, but we don't have a set timeline for that. And so I think that really being able to put that kind of long-term comprehensive care that we not only give resources, but provide care. And in some cases, many, many people are able to use those resources, make a phone call, figure out how to get their hot water fixed. But some, um, some patients aren't, and they need that extra help of somebody either calling for them, or better yet, calling with them, coaching them through that call and helping them. I think another very important thing about this population, we chose, well, MGB chose the patients extremely carefully. These were not patients who had one year of uh, increased care, increased costs. We had patients who had a prolonged period of high cost, low engagement, high needs. And so I think there's a lot to really carefully picking um, the patients to be in a program like this um, because it is incredibly resource intensive and you want it to, you want to pick people who are going to benefit. And and equally importantly, MGB has a lot of amazing programs. So we want to pick people who, who weren't benefiting from programs that have already been proven to help. And then I think there was also the full integration that we had into um, MGB with all of their resources with population health, 
collaborating with their home hospital program, their palliative care programs, and their fantastic primary care staff. Yeah, I would I would just second all of Lori's um, really thoughtful points here. You know, particularly the note on the in level of integration. When we were implementing this program, we had a very extensive internal communication plan meeting with many individual primary care practices, even if they had one, two, or three patients to help them understand the opportunity. ED staff, social uh, the social worker team, the inpatient care management team, the outpatient care management team. So many of our team members were very aggressively socialized the program. And then integrating things, like you said, getting CCA's providers credentialed at our facilities, integrating within the EHR. So it felt as seamless as possible. Just the little details were so important when pulling this together. And the broader point that you made, um, Lori, around patient selection and intervention design, like these programs are not monolithic and the details matter. It's very important to match the intensity of the patient needs with the specific types of interventions you're providing to them. And so selection intervention design are are critical. Well, that was the last question I had for you. Is there anything else you would like to add? I had a couple of thoughts for um, for folks who are listening to the podcast who might you know who might be interested in developing a program like this. One is that um, it was a really exciting experience to have a partnership between a relatively small nonprofit growing and an academic medical center, and it took a lot of work on the relationship, um, but. I would say from the outset, there was appreciation on both sides for um, for strengths and challenges and really working together to ensure that, that we could be successful. Um, and then the other thing was that one thing that was key to, I think, the success of this program was um, the buy-in from the primary care providers. Um, and that took an enormous amount of time and effort. I think Jack visited every primary care practice in the MGB system. Um, we did the same thing. And still, you know, after a year, people would be like, what's this ICMP plus thing? And it really, it took time. Doctors sometimes would glom right onto it, but more often they they had a lot of questions about it. And, you know, five years later, I mean, I think the physicians are um, one of our biggest supporters and are super excited. And we actually have a, um, a pathway where maybe the patient isn't eligible by the numbers, but physicians can ask if their patient can be put into the ICMP plus program. Um, so I think really spending time in in all spheres, but spending that time and effort um, in on the relationship, particularly in the re- relationship with the primary care practices. Yeah, excellent points, Lori. And, and I would just add, I think what doesn't come through in the article are the many patient level stories of those whose lives are dramatically improved through access to the right support in the right setting provided by deeply committed teams. And I, that deeply committed teams is important as I think that really the types of team members that we were working with on the front line, it takes a special kind of person, I think, to really engage in this kind of work 
go out in the community, do whatever it takes to help patients dramatically improve their lives. And that is a critical element that we really didn't cover before on the, the phenotype of the staff that's required to do this really, really well is very important. And then I would just say, again, we're, of course, deeply grateful to an incredible group of co-authors and the teams at yeah. Mass General Brigham and CCA for their work on the program um, and the broader ecosystem of people learning about complex care, care management. We referenced the, the Camden Coalition earlier, who we just think so incredibly highly of and continue to, to learn from and be inspired by. So there's so many people that um, are trying to get this stuff right and we're excited to contribute a small portion to the literature. And we encourage we encourage lots of people to publish and write about this because that's how we learn about how to really be successful in this area. Um, super exciting. And uh, it, it's been a great experience, I think, for all of us at CCA um, to work with the MGB folks and uh, to have been uh, privileged to be a co-author on the paper. Well, on behalf of myself, AJMC, and our audience, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today on this important topic. We really do appreciate your time. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, Email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.